Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we continue our series of special episodes featuring highlights from panel discussions during BIO's virtual annual conference in May 2021. The session, How to Pay for It, or Funding Your Biography, featured panelists Steve Hindle, Carla Kaplan, and Mark Silver. It was moderated by BIO member Heath Hartage Lee. Welcome, everyone, to our panel today. I'll just quickly introduce myself. I'm Heath Hardage Lee. I'm the author of two biographies, The League of Wives and Winnie Davis, Daughter of the Lost Cause. I'm also an independent museum curator, and I'm currently working on a new biography of First Lady Pat Nixon. I am going to be your moderator today for our wonderful, intriguing panel, How to Pay for It, or Funding Your Biography, which I think is of vital importance to all of us. So we are very, very fortunate today to have three distinguished panelists who are going to give us their varied and valuable advice and perspectives on this particular subject. I'm just going to very briefly introduce them, and then they're going to introduce themselves in more depth. So I'm going to start with Dr. Carla Kaplan, the Davis Distinguished Professor in American Literature and Founding Director of Northeastern University's Humanities Center. Next, we have Mark Silver, the Senior Program Officer at the Division of Research Programs at the National Endowment for the Humanities. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Steve Hindle, the W.M. Keck Foundation Director of Research for the Huntington Library in San Marina, California, where he oversees their grants and fellowship programs. I personally have loved learning from our panelists during our planning sessions. And in fact, they inspired me to apply for a fellowship for the first time. And no, I have not heard the results yet. I am on pins and needles, (laughs) but it had not even occurred to me to do this until I started working with them. And I realized how short-sighted I had been. So um, it's already been successful, I think, our panel (laughs) in in that regard. Um, We all know, I think, how small these advances that we get from publishers, if we get them at all, um, academic presses are extremely small, but even the mainstream presses, and I've done both, it may seem like a large amount at the time, if, if you're lucky, but spread out over the four or so years, you need to do a really comprehensive biography. It is nothing. It is a very small amount of money. So I think today's going to really encourage us to be more creative, to think out of the box about how we fund ourselves and to um, figure out better what our own resource development needs to look like. So now I'm going to move on and have each of our panelists spend about five minutes introducing themselves to you in a little bit more depth. And they're each going to talk about one specific item uh, related to our topic today that we've kind of pre-discussed. So that'll give us a good entree into the topic. Then we will do questions um, that I have for the panelists. For This will take probably about 30 minutes. And then the last 15 minutes or so, I'm going to open it up to the audience for questions. So thank you for your attention to that part. And with that, I am going to turn the mic over to Carla to begin. Thank you, Heath. And um, it's a great honor to be on this panel with uh, Mark and Steve. So thank you for inviting me to do this. And hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. I really hope this is useful and that you do have questions for us in the Q&A. I'm currently working on my eighth book project and my third biography, although many of my other projects have had a biographical component, and that's in spite of being trained as a theorist and in some ways trained as an anti-biographical critical theorist. So I can talk about that trajectory as well. My first biography was an epistolary biography, Zora Neale Hurston, A Life in Letters with Doubleday, 
My second was a group biography, Miss Anne in Harlem, The White Women of the Black Renaissance with HarperCollins. And right now I am writing Queen of the Muckrakers, The Life and Times of Jessica Mitford for HarperCollins as well, about a British aristocrat who became a well-known American communist, activist, and revived muckraking as a genre. The Midford Project received early support from the NEH Public Scholar Program, indeed, I think from the first cohort, Mark will correct me if I'm wrong. And I have to tell you, this is the support I am proudest of because that support recognized the labor that went into making the first two biographies accessible to a general public. In the case of Zora Neale Hurston, her letters were enormously important to critics and to scholars but they had to be published for the general public. It was the first book of a black woman writer, artist, or intellectual's letters that had to be for the general public. And my second book, Miss Anne in Harlem, was deeply informed by theories of identity, of race, of gender, and their intersectionality, but I wrote it quite literally for my mother's book club. And I'm very proud to say my mother's book club, just before my mother passed away, did do the book and they even seemed to like it. So Mitford was uh, a gift in some ways. She led an extraordinary life. She was also not a gift in one other way, which is she left behind hundreds and hundreds of boxes of material. I'm not being hyperbolic. It's, it's real, literally hundreds and hundreds. It was the first time I've ever digitized the material. I did it myself. It was incredibly expensive and overwhelming. It kept me from living in Columbus, Ohio for more than five months. Now, based on these projects, I can answer questions about letters, estates, trade publishing, especially if you start as an academic, about group biography, about slice of life versus comprehensive cradle to grave. The Mitford, God Save Me, is cradle to grave. Um, I can also answer questions about working with families, but I'm actually not here in that hat. I am not really here today as writer except that I've applied for and received lots and lots of fellowships. What I'm really here as is someone who has read for many of the key fellowship competitions. Now, I have received lots of long and short-term fellowships, both resident and non-resident research and travel and archival, including, as I mentioned, the NEH Public Scholar, but also the Guggenheim, the Pullman Center, the National Humanities Center, the Schomburg Center, the W.E.B. Du Bois Institute, the Wellesley Humanities Center, Yale University, the New England Regional Fellowship Consortium, the Leon Levy Center for the Study of Biography. And I've read for all of those and many more, including the ACLS and the Stanford Humanities Center. It's as a reader on those panels that I wanna to talk to you about audience. The first question is who reads your fellowship proposal? So if you write an application with a project proposal, who is reading it? That is the thing you should be thinking about constantly. The person reading it I, knows probably nothing about your subject. And the person reading it is part of an interdisciplinary panel of academics and non-academics. And here's the part where Mark and Steve have to put their fingers in their ears and not listen to what I'm saying, although they know what I'm about to say is the truth. The person reading it was supposed to have read it weeks ago because the final decisions are happening tomorrow. And the person reading it is reading it in their underwear, having graded papers all day, frantic because they're late with their fellowship proposal reading reports, and they're reading it in a kind of a panic. That's who you're writing for. Given that, you can only do so much. If you think about that person as your panelist, and you think about the keywords that people use, who, what, where, when, why, and how, get rid of all of them except for why. What matters in your project proposal is making clear to that audience why your book matters. What doesn't matter to that person are the details of the argument you're going to make. You cannot catch their attention with their details. And every one of us gets into biography because we love detail. If you don't love detailed archival work, you can't be a biographer. Most of us are born nerds and we love getting into research detail. 
but it can't go into your proposal except in the most minimal form. And it's heartbreaking. But what can go into your proposal is why your book matters, who it matters to, and why it matters to them, and why it matters now, and why you are the person to make it matter now. Why, 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 and why. So I always encourage people to stay out of the weeds, to write for the strongest undergraduate they know, and to modulate their rhetoric and to modulate their proposal. If you think about that reviewer who is late with their, re their review reports, who is reading in a panic, who is reading late at night having graded papers, if your proposal strikes the same level of generality, sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence after sentence, no matter how interesting your material, you're gonna lose your reader. If you think about the image of a sound wave and how it goes up and down like this, that's the rhetoric you want in your proposal. That's the relationship between generality and detail that will catch and hold their attention. The other thing I would urge you to think about in terms of audience, particularly if you are an academic, is writing a proposal means going against your training. Let me speak for myself. It means going against my training. I was trained as a theorist and a literary critic. I was trained to be comprehensive. I was trained to be detailed and I was trained to be right. You know what I was not trained to be? Interesting. Academics are not trained to be interesting. They are trained to be comprehensive. They are trained to be thorough. They are trained to make a strong argument, but you have to set all that aside and think about your audience. What's going to be interesting to them and why? So that's the suggestion I always make and distill your project down to that why. Tell the parts of the story that explain why Jessica Mitford matters now. Yes, there are amazing stories about her life when she was 15, when she was 28, when she was 45. But unless my reader knows why she matters now, None of that counts. So audience, audience, audience. And I think I'm over time. Sorry. That was great, Carla. Thank you so much. Well, let's move on to Mark. Hi, everybody. I'm delighted to be here with you. Thank you for coming to the session. Uh, my name again is Mark Silver. I'm a program officer at the National Endowment for the Humanities, or NEH for short. And if you're not familiar with NEH, we're a federal government agency. Uh, we support projects in the humanities by making grants. And we do that through nationwide competitions that are based on peer review. And in a typical year, we make about $130 million in grants. We have a huge menu of grant programs, but I'm going to just highlight one in particular for this audience because it tends to be a good fit for biographers. And that's uh, our public scholars program, which Carla mentioned. This program's designed specifically to support books written for general readers. So the expectation is that they'll be very deeply researched they'll have uh, high intellectual significance, but they'll be written in a way that's appealing and, and engaging so that any curious person could pick up one of the books and learn from it, regardless of their previous knowledge of the subject. So there's a natural fit, I think, between the genre of biography and the goals of this NEH program, because the life story of a central person often works very well for general readers as a point of entry into a, a particular period or a particular cultural milieu or um, a particular story of intellectual discovery. In a typical year, we get about 300 applications in the Public Scholars Program, and we make about 25 to 30 awards. And about six to eight of those awards will end up going to biographies of one kind or another. I can give you some examples of biographies that have been published recently with our support. Uh, Janice Nimordo's book, The Doctor's Blackwell, Heather Clark's biography of Sylvia Plath, Red Comet, Nicholas Basbanes's book, Cross of Snow, A Life of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, 
and uh, Stephen Heyman's book, The Planter of Modern Life, Lewis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution, uh, also had the support of the Public Scholars Program. The grants range from $30,000 to $60,000, depending on how many months of support you're seeking. Uh, so we, we pay $5,000 per month for a period of six to 12 months. The deadline is in December each year, and you can start your grant term as early as the following September 1st. Uh, Briefly, uh, we have some basic eligibility requirements. So you have to be either a US citizen or have resided in the US for the three years preceding the application deadline in order to apply. And we also have a requirement for previous publication. So to be eligible, you either have to have written a nonfiction book already or have a portfolio of pieces that were published in general interest publications. I'll give you three top tips for applicants to the Public Scholars Program. And the first one really echoes what Carla was saying about why. So think hard about why your biography matters. Does the life story you're telling help us understand something else apart from that person? If so, that something else should probably be a key selling point for you. So articulate that very carefully. And that takes hard work. It takes um, consultation with other people. It takes refinement over time. So don't rest easy with your statement of why your project matters. You, you need to work that from multiple directions over a period of time to really arrive at the essence of your project. Uh, second tip, think about your own profile as an applicant and what you need to do to hit the sweet spot that we're looking for in this program, where you have both intellectual significance in your project, but also audience appeal. So if your background's in journalism or you've already written books for a popular audience, think about consulting with scholars in the humanities. If you're a professional scholar, think about getting advice on how to frame your project for maximum audience appeal, and think about getting advice about how to rid yourself of academic tics in your writing. Uh, then the third tip is um, slightly more in the weeds, but it's a, a mistake that I see in applications from biographers. This program does not support fiction. So you have to be on guard against fictionalization. There's a temptation, I think, to reach for the vivid description, the vivid detail. Um, he ran down the street as the smoke filled his nostrils and his heart was pounding. Well, do you really know all that? Maybe you do, and, and that's fine. But if it's based on inference or um, artistic license, then you're getting onto thin ice. And we're persnickety about that in the Public Scholars Program because we don't support fiction. So um, you wanna be careful that you can really document what you're, you're telling the, the reader. I'll wind up just by telling you that there's more information on our website, which is www.neh.gov for government. That's where you can find the notice of funding opportunity which is a key document explaining the review criteria for the program and also how to apply. The website also has videotaped information sessions that you can watch. Uh, and there are samples of successful applications there as well that you can refer to. And uh, the email address for the program is publicscholars at neh.gov. And you should feel free to write if you have questions. Over to Steve. Go ahead, Steve. Terrific. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Lee. Uh, congratulations, Carla. You succeeded in sounding interesting, even <laughs> though you weren't trained. Uh, so my name is Steve Hindle. I'm Director of Research at the Huntington uh, Library in San Marino, California, which is about 10 miles northeast of Los Angeles. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally from this part of the world. I'm originally from uh, near Liverpool in northwest England. I've been at the Huntington for 10 years, 
And I'm the guy who chairs the selection panels made up of those overtired, exhausted, um, underwear wearing, fellowship application reading uh, scholars about whom Carla was talking. In many circumstances, I'm acutely aware that these things are not just read late at night after a day marking or examining, but on the plane on the way to the fellowship selection committee meeting. So lots of this, as Carla says, is done right at the last minute. So I speak as somebody who has oversight of the process of awarding fellowships. The Huntington is a collections-based research and educational institution in the service of scholars and the wider public. To that extent, it represents a very particular subset of the fellowship uh, programs that we've been talking about in this session. Many of the places that uh, Carla mentioned where she's held fellowships are non-residential and are non-collections based. Our program is residential and it's collections based. And that means that in applying for funding for us, you need to explain why you need to come into residence to use our collections for your biography. It's a question of deciding in the first instance, I think, whether the Huntington is the appropriate place for you to conduct the kind of research that uh, Carla was talking about. We have uh, very significant funds for this purpose. Each year, we give away about $2.1 million in research funding. Uh, 20 awards are for a full academic year in residence, and they are $50,000 each. About 150 awards are for a number of months residents, between one and five months residents, at $3,500 per month. For a full year's residence, for eligibility, you need to be a scholar. That is to say, you have to have a PhD. But all of our short-term awards are open to those who do not have um, doctorates, who simply can make the legitimate case that they need to use our collections. What sort of biographical work has been done in those collections? Let me drop a few names. David Blight, who you heard earlier in the program, he began his Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Frederick Douglass as a Huntington Fellow. Linnell George, who's just published a really rather brilliant book on the science fiction writer Octavia E. Butler, concluded that project on a short-term fellowship at the Huntington. We hold Butler's papers. Joyce Morgan, uh, an Australian journalist, has just published a very significant biography of the socialite and writer Elizabeth von Arnim, and that was done as a Huntington Fellowship as well. There are biographies in progress on Jack London and on the British historical fiction writer Hilary Mantel, both of whose papers we hold. And there's been lots and lots of uh, research conducted by way of context for significant biographies of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, because the Huntington is one of the leading repositories in the world for the study of the American Civil War, and for biographies of the British artists Thomas Gainsborough and Joshua Reynolds, because we have magnificent art collections at the Huntington too. The proverbial joke is that if you were to imagine a coffee table with three volumes on it, the best library collections in the world, the best art museums in the world, and the best botanical collections in the world, the Huntington would be the only institution anywhere with a legitimate claim to be in all three of those volumes. Advice in terms of uh, submitting an application. Well, I can reinforce uh, certain elements of what's been said already. Why, 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 and why it matters in Carla and Mark's formulations uh, are, I think, critically important. The answer to the so what question is not self-evident. You really do need to spell out to an audience of non-specialists why it matters. So just imagine your exhausted peer reviewer thinking, so what? Who cares? You need to try and preempt that question. Secondly, you have to convince the peer review committee that you've done due diligence about our collections. If you start to talk about the possibility of writing a biography of a figure for whom our collections have no relevance at all, your application is dead in the water. 
You need to do due diligence on our collections. You need to reach out to our curatorial staff to find out what have you got on John Adams, for instance? What have you got on Abigail Adams? What have you got on Winston Churchill? And as it happens, we have very little material about any of those three individuals, but a curator would tell you that so that you could take advice and look elsewhere. So make sure that you apprise yourself of what the collections are that might support the project. And then finally, you need to convince the peer review committee that you are the right person to conduct this kind of research. You need to say something about your own track record, your own credentials for writing a biography that will engage scholars and the wider public because in doing so, you'll not only support your project, but you will help us fulfill our mission, which is to disseminate humanities scholarship to a wider public audience. And I'll pause there. Thanks. That was great, Steve. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to jump into a few questions, and these I'm going to throw out to everyone. So just jump right into it if it speaks to you. The first one is something um, I didn't know much about, and I bet a lot of people don't. Um, at what stage in a writing project should people begin applying for grants, residencies, and fellowships? My sense in respect of that question, and this, this applies to most residential collections-based programs, not just at the Huntington, but at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas, at the Folger in Washington, D.C., at the Newbury in Chicago, or the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts, is that the fellowship granting agencies don't really care. They will support a biography right at the point where it is first being conceptualized or thought through, and they will support a, a biography just as it is being brought to conclusion. All they want to see is the ultimate relevance of their collections for the project and the potential for its successful conclusion. And we are well aware that it might take several years after the residency before the book eventually appears. Uh, David Blight held his Huntington Fellowship in 2010 to 11 and didn't publish the book until 2019. So we were well aware when we funded that project that it was right at its uh, beginning stages. Uh, I can chime in and say that we at NEH also in our guidelines say that we fund projects at any stage of development. So that's true as far as that goes. Oh, and the other thing to say is you can apply at any stage as a part of the project development because you're going to get feedback from the reviewers. So I, I think there are people out there who put in an application thinking, you know, I just haven't done enough work on this yet, but the application process itself is going to force me to move the project forward. And I'm also going to get some valuable feedback on it. So it can be part of the process of developing and, and moving your project forward just to put in an application. But um, let's say you're really intent on getting a grant and you want to um, sort of time it right. I think in practice, most successful applicants in the public scholars program, at least, they have a plausible chapter outline at the time that they apply. We ask for a writing sample. Your application will be stronger if you can provide a draft chapter from your proposed book. So if you have the chapter outline and you have a sample chapter, you're on stronger footing. You don't have to have those things necessarily, but you're on stronger footing if you do. And another thing we look at is your plan for publication. So have you talked to a publisher about uh, publication plans? Do you have a contract? Um, again, those things aren't required in order to get one of these grants, but they help your case. So I would say if you have two of those three things, chapter outline, sample chapter, and talks with a publisher and possibly a contract, you're probably in a very good position to apply. If you have, if you have one of those three things, it starts to get a bit if you're, it will probably depend more on your previous record. And again, I mean, I'm always hesitant to sort of lay out general rules like this, but if I had, you know, if a knife were being held to my throat, I think I'd say something like that. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add two things. And I really want to support that there's no absolute rule to this. Um, you have to have a sense of when you know enough about what you're writing about to be able to make the case about why it matters. That can happen early. 
I knew much more about why Jessica Mitford mattered early on than I actually knew about her life. Interesting. And I knew that she mattered because she was someone who was born to one life, a life many people covet, envy, and think they want, a life of enormous wealth and privilege, and who gave it up to become an American communist and to have very little money and to work her, took us off 80 to 90 hours a week for the rest of her life and to then become a writer working even more hours a week for the rest of her life and who deliberately gave that up. And I knew that that was a story that mattered, that the, the kinds of choices people make and why they make them. And I also knew we didn't have very many good biographies of women activists. You know, everyone can point to the Emma Goldman biographies, but we, you know, we have to have more than that. I knew she mattered before I knew the detail of her life. Um, same with Hurston, but that's not always the case. The point at which you know why your subject matters is a good time to do it. But I would also say, be honest with yourself about how you work and where you work and when you can do a residency. If you can only work at home because you are very, very distractible and because you have to have 56 boxes of paperwork that can't be shipped to California, then figure out the one year in which you're going to be doing all your edits when you could be there and aim for that. But be realistic because a residency is a wonderful thing if you hit the right timing. And it's an awful thing if you don't. There's nothing worse than getting a prestigious resident fellowship that doesn't work for you because you have to be there every day, but you can only work at home. So really think that out and try to time it for the year in which you can make the most use out of being part of a community because a resident fellowship is about the archive as Steve has emphasized, but it's also about the intellectual community. It's about learning from the other fellows, listening to them, being with people who aren't working in any way on your subject, but who share your methodological archival research and writing problems and who you can listen to and learn from. And you wanna be in that space where you can listen to others. So trying to time it, it's tricky, right? But trying to time it for the year in which you can best do that really does matter. Great, thank you, Carla. Okay, second question. Let's say you're super lucky and you end up with a very handsome advance for your book from a publisher. You have the contract, you have a good advance. Does that disqualify you from pursuing other funding opportunities, fellowships, grants, things like that? So I would say not from my perspective. Um, I think I would echo Mark's comments that our peer review committees would want to know if you're in serious conversation with a publisher or that you had signed a contract with a publisher for your particular project, uh, but they wouldn't uh, be at all interested in the scale or nature of the advance. I would encourage you with a contract or without, with an advance or not to apply for residential fellowships if you think it will help you fulfill the terms of the contract, but certainly by no means rules you out uh, from uh, consideration. I do think in general peer review committees, especially if they're looking at proposals from independent scholars who are not affiliated with an academic institution, do like to see evidence of a, a contract or at least a serious approach from a publisher. Um, as far as NEH is concerned, um, we don't ask about advances, and you're welcome to have an advance. It, it doesn't affect our review of the application or your chances of, of getting an award. You're, you're always welcome to combine NEH awards with other sources of, of support. And I, I mean, we, we know some people do have handsome advances, but we still see a, an important niche for NEH's money because of the way those advances often are divvied up. So we think there's room to support, particularly the research phase of a project. Agreed. The advances are often sliced in three or four and take forever to get paid out. Many of us know this. So it, you go a long time in between those, that these could be most helpful. Carla, anything on that or... Well, I would just add, I've never, um, as Steve has, has intimated, I've never been asked what my advances were. So it's just never come up in an application. And 
the three biographical projects I've done really took a great deal of time and they were very expensive to produce. The Hurston project to the, of collecting her letters and then turning it into a life took seven years of research and I traveled to over 50 places because of course your letters aren't in your archive. They're in the archives of whoever you wrote for too or they may not have archives. So they're in some relative's basement or, or attic. Um, the Miss Anne in Harlem project I was doing a group biography. So again, enormous amount of travel, collecting documents. It was very expensive. Uh, the Midford project, which I had hoped would take five years is probably gonna be, end up taking about eight. It's an enormous life with a massive amount of material and one of the expenses was digitizing it. And that took out of my pocket about $30,000. So biographies are expensive. Those of us who are lucky enough to also have academic jobs where maybe we can work a sabbatical and get a year off are well positioned, but most biographical advances spread over five to eight years, given the expense of biography. Most of us actually spend more money than we make. Right on, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let me move on to, to something uh, that I think has been on everyone's minds recently and for, but for many years as well. What about the role of diversity in these programs? How does that impact applications? So the ground is shifting under everybody's feet very, very rapidly uh, on this issue uh, right now. As you say, uh, emphases on diversity and inclusivity and equity have been around for many, many years but they've intensified and accelerated for obvious reasons in respect of concerns about social and racial justice in the United States in the wake of the events of, of last summer. There is not an academic institution or a humanities institute or a cultural institution in the United States that is not thinking very seriously about DEI, uh, diversity, equity and inclusivity, Many institutions are developing strategic plans, not just for their fellowship programs, but for their staffing, for their human resources, for their volunteer constituencies. So questions of DEI are taken very, very seriously. I think the most appropriate language to describe the way these things are having an impact is that selection committees, uh, peer review committees, will always have an eye on what's come to be called inclusive excellence. That is to say, they want to put together a cohort of scholars or biographers or writers who uh, are broadly representative of the constituency uh, of, the, of the broader society. That's what they're aiming for. Um, in many institutions, my own included, that has meant being much more thoughtful and intentional about the membership of the peer review committees that make those selections, so that groups that have been historically underrepresented in the academy are represented on those selection committees. When we made our uh, selections in February of this year, I was half expecting to have to emphasize inclusive excellence to the members of our peer review committee. In fact, it was completely redundant to do so because all of them in their own institutions were actively doing that kind of work anyway. So it's becoming instinctive to think about these issues as these choices are made. And of course, the diversification of cohorts of scholars is a good thing, both for the institutions, but also for humanities disciplines more generally. Other comments? At NEH, I would say that we put the emphasis on the composition of the review committees. And we are careful as we put those together, we're seeking diversity of many different kinds, actually. We want geographic diversity. We want people who've read for us before and have not read for us before. Uh, but we're certainly interested in ethnic and racial diversity on the make of, the, of those committees as well. Um, we're less explicit than perhaps the Huntingdon is uh, in terms of thinking about the cohort that we're creating in a particular class of grantees. For one thing, we don't actually have information on the, the racial and ethnic identity of our applicants. That's at least as things currently stand. Um, we like it when we get a diverse cohort. Uh, you know, once the, the sausage has been made, 
but um, we're not giving an extra boost to applicants on the basis of racial or ethnic identity in the review process. However, if a project is giving voice to underrepresented perspectives, I mean, that in itself can count as a kind of intellectual significance, which okay. may well lead to a happy result for, for the applicant. Just as a footnote to that comment, um, amongst those scholars who were awarded fellowships this year at the Huntington were two white scholars who were working or are working or will be working on projects deeply connected with indigenous peoples. So that is well worth bearing in mind that diversity doesn't just mean the diversity in the scholarly cohort, but it also means diversity in the subject matter. Carla, anything to add? I would just add that this period where, as Steve says, this is now in the forefront of every jury, every academic institution's thinking, it's been a long time coming. It was long overdue. It is to be celebrated. Right. And I would say it puts a particular kind of pressure on what it means to be interesting. Because in the past, one could seem to be interesting by just appealing to what was already interesting. But now that we recognize that the very categories of merit and interest are themselves part of the uneven distribution of cultural goods and values yeah. that has been part of systemic racism, it's worth thinking of when you make a case that your book matters and who it matters to, to think about who is your you? Who is the, the constituency you imagine and does it address a diverse group of people? Does it matter to lots of different people? Or does it matter to the same people whose interests have been centered for a very long time? So I do think it puts pressure on the why question. And I think that's always a good thing. It's the hardest thing we do, but it's the most rewarding thing we do. It's the thing that makes the most difference. And anything that can put pressure on that, I think is all to the intellectual good. And I just want to say again, this reckoning, this moment of recognizing that, the, that cultural resources have never been distributed by a meritocracy or fairly, and that it's time to think more seriously about them. It's a challenging moment and it's a terrific one. It's an honor to be living through it. I feel like standing and applauding. Thank you, Carla. <laughs> Great commentary from everyone. All right, because I wanna keep us on track, I'm gonna open this up to the audience q and I'm gonna take some questions from the chat. So let me start with Ed Sullivan's question. Do you need a publishing contract for a book project in order to be eligible for a fellowship or residency? No. Yeah, answer no. I like that answer. No, that's, <laughs> that's a great thing. That's what you want to hear on that. Let me move on to Elizabeth McCune's comment. Oh, this is a fun one. Can you comment on tax deductions, if any, for writing a biography? For example, if one travels to do research, is this tax deductible? How about the office one uses at home, perhaps for writing? Or is seeking tax deductions not worth the effort um, example, saving receipts. I can start with that, but I'm going to try not to be particularly self-revealing. Um, <laughs> I am going to have to be political in responding to that, um, which is to say the rules on this have changed. They changed in the last administration and they changed very deliberately. So the last administration's tax rules targeted independent consultants and they they specifically targeted writers and artists. This was in my mind, not accidental. Um, be very careful that you're following new rules, not old ones. Um, I will just share that it became necessary for many of us who do this kind of work and who felt it was appropriate to take a tax deduction for some of those expenses to incorporate. And that's what the new rules in fact often require. But don't just assume you're going to be able to subtract your office and your travel expenses anymore. All of that changed over the last four, four and a half years. We may see it change back, but don't make assumptions based on the way things used to be. Mm -hmm. Other comments? 
So the Huntington is obliged to withhold California state tax from the residencies that it awards. Uh, it doesn't withhold federal tax. The same is true at NEH. We don't withhold money for taxes. And um, we have a rule about not giving tax advice as <laughs> federal agency employees. And I hope I didn't give any advice other than don't make assumptions. Check with experts because the rules have all changed. Yep. I hope I didn't give advice because it would be awful. <laughs> no. no, no, we're good. Yeah, it depends on your accountant as well, because some are super conservative, don't want you to deduct anything. So and some will go, you know, visit you in jail and some won't. And so, you know, you have to choose your accountant carefully. That's right. <laughs> well, we will move on to a different question. This, this is a good one. From Paula Broussard to everyone, is there a searchable database where we can look for an appropriate fellowship to match our project? That's a, a really, really good question. How I wish there was. Yeah. Uh, let me explain a little about how difficult the situation is even in one institution before we start talking about uh, cross-institutional links. So many collections-based research institutions like the Huntington, and I speak also, as I've said earlier, for the Folger and the Newbury and the Harry Ransom Center, have collections that were developed over many, many, many decades often legacy collections that came to us from their founders. And in many cases, they are either very poorly catalogued mm -hmm. or not catalogued at all. This is what's come to be known euphemistically in the library world as a discoverability problem. Um, and it means that it's often very, very difficult at a distance to find out what particular collections an institution holds. And the solution to that, in most cases, is by writing directly to a curator to ask a direct question. So for collections-based fellowship programs, that's a big problem because you don't know whether the fellowship program will be relevant for you at that particular institution because you can't tell what the collections are. And then once you extrapolate from there across institutions, many of which have the same difficulty, then you start to see just how challenging uh, this is. Um, it's very, very difficult to give uh, serious advice about this uh, dilemma. Very often, it's only solved by word of mouth or by serendipitous conversation, where you learn that a particular institution holds a particular archive and has a fellowship that will support work upon it. Uh, but I, I think it's a, a very, very significant problem. Uh, across humanities research centers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's all well said. And it is difficult to find the right grants when you're just looking at the complete universe of them. And so I, I guess my advice would be build that time into your, your workflow somehow um, and just realize it's going to take time. As far as NEH grants go, we do have um, a sort of rudimentary search function on our on our website so that you can, without spending a huge amount of time, begin to narrow the possibilities down. And then I would think about contacting someone on the staff if you're uncertain about the details of the program, we're happy to, to have that conversation with you. Um, there are internet bulletin boards you could subscribe mm -hmm. to as well, things on HNET, HAnounce, for example, but those aren't telling you what's right for you. It's just a stream of announcements of opportunities, but it would be mm -hmm. worth keeping an eye on something like that mm -hmm. as well. I don't know of any single aggregate source, and even those that aggregate these aggregate them differently for travel grants, for fellowships and grants, um, for uh, writing residencies like um, Yaddo and McDowell would come up differently than the National Humanities Center. So they get aggregated in different places differently. Don't trust, if you go to something like resources for writers, don't trust that as your only source. They may be aggregating just places like Yaddo and McDowell and writing residencies, not fellowship programs, residency or otherwise. The two places I have actually found most useful, in addition to things like the kinds of internet resources Mark was talking about, and PMLA is a great one. They, they A lot of these appear in the publications of the Modern Language Association. But the two places that have always been most useful to me are the acknowledgments of other biographers' books. Right. 
people uh, who are doing anything similar. Um, no biographer worth their salt will fail to acknowledge their support. So all of us are pretty careful in our acknowledgements and thrilled to thank those who helped us out. So acknowledgements are actually a great source for this. You obviously want recent ones. But let me just say as something as the daughter of a librarian, do not neglect talking to reference librarians right. about this, including university reference librarians. Every university has a reference librarian on staff whose job it is to talk to people looking for support for research in the humanities. And they are happy to talk to people outside their institutions and to non-academics. Librarians are the most underutilized free resource I know of in America. I know of no other professional with that level of expertise who is available to you with a phone call for free. And reference librarians don't charge you for their services. Um, and they are trained at the level of any other highly trained professional and they'll talk to you for free and they'll talk to you multiple times. Yeah. Take advantage of it. They're a wonderful underutilized resource. Mm -hmm. All right, let me move on to, we have so many great questions. Uh, this one is from Trina Young for Mark. So Mark, if your previous book was self-published, does that count towards your requirement to apply to NEH? No. All right, that's handily taken. Oh, I, I, time is short, so I won't, you know, go into reasons. But um, the, the way the requirement stands, it it would not count. Gotcha. All right, so let me move on uh, from Susanna Hollister. Do any of you have experience with co-authors applying for fellowships that are set up for individuals, either in a single application or separately? Thank you for asking, Susanna. This has come up more and more frequently in recent years, and the Huntington has had to evolve its policies to try and make our discussions about these types of applications much more transparent. I guess I would disaggregate my answer into two parts. We give away a limited number of long-term fellowships each year, and awarding a grant to two scholars to work on one project would be to significantly diminish the pool of grants that were eligible for other applicants. A couple of joint applications have very nearly succeeded in the past for long-term fellowships, but very often the peer review committee feels that it's over-egging the pudding, as it were, to throw two grants at one project. It may be more sensible if it's a joint application to ask for half the resources for each scholar rather than for all the resources for both scholars. For short-term fellowships where we've got a much larger pool of grants to give out, it's much more likely to be successful. But there again, I think the applicants need to cross-reference to each other's application and they need to make it clear uh, whether one would be prepared to accept an award if the other scholar was not successful. Either way, we don't accept two scholars submitting a single application. They have to be separate applications to the same project. Uh, most of what Steve said also applies with the NEH grant. So you'd have to put in two separate applications, cross-reference each other. And it's an uphill battle, to be honest, um, not only because of the issue of um, throwing so much money at one project, but simply to convince the reviewers that the collaboration is going to come off. It's difficult to cover all the bases, really, in those applications, I think. So... If you're interested in doing it, I would call us up and we can try to give you some advice about it, but it is difficult. It's an uphill battle. All right. Uh, one last question here from Helen Bain. When reading an application, do you tend to value information delivered in a literal, straightforward way over something more stylistic? Is it better to let the writing sample do that work or might you be swayed by beautifully expressed phrases across the application? Well, speaking personally, I'm, I'm all for mellifluousness, right? I like sweetly written prose. That said, peer review committees hate jargonistic prose. Um, there's a wonderful example from a peer review committee a few years ago where one of the panelists was a very well-known art historian from Yale University. And we got to the discussion of a particular proposal 
And this panelist said, well, I don't know whether to give this one plus the best score or three minus the worst score. And I said, why? What, why ever the discrepancy? She said, because I don't understand the word of it. And I said, well, three minus by definition. The most important thing is for your application to be intelligible and clear to a non-specialist. That said, the Huntington doesn't ask for writing samples. So we haven't got, got anything else to go on other than your project proposal, which is only 1,500 words in our case. It's not a long piece of writing. But I think what we're looking for is clarity uh, above all else. Yeah, you, you took the words out of my mouth, Steve. That's what I was going to say. Clarity above all else. Clarity and substance. Now, there's a way in which an elegant expression, an apt expression, is absolutely the right expression and therefore very efficient. And so if that's what you're aiming for, then fine. And it, it could certainly help you in the narrative as well as the sample. So it really depends on what you mean by beautiful, I think. So clarity above all, I think, is, is what I would say. And, and maybe think about saving some of your for the writing sample. I just want to confirm all of that and as a reader of these and, and say, remind you, your proposal has to stand out. It has to catch the attention of this reader on the plane who, who should have done these weeks ago. And as somebody who is always the reader on the plane and always getting to these kind of at the last minute because it's in the queue. And I so, so now neither Steve or Mark will ever ask me to do this again because I've just admitted I do them at the last minute. But as somebody who tends to do that work on the plane, the one thing I will tell you is I never do that with my proposals. They are the one thing I write early and I write over and over and over again because it has to be your best writing, which does not mean flowery writing, but it means your clearest, most rewritten, most done over and over and over again. So start that proposal in the spring before you're gonna be applying for fellowship so that you can share it with colleagues and friends so that you can rewrite it all summer. You're gonna use it for many things. If you have a book proposal to work with so much the better, but it, it's, your, it's the document that you, it's gotta be your very, very best writing. I do see one more question from Celia Starr, the author of the wonderful recent Frida Kahlo book. Approximately how many people comprise a panel? I think I'm right in saying, and Mark will correct me if I'm wrong, that NEH guidance is generally for five member panels. That's certainly been the Huntington's practice, and I should be transparent about it. We try and choose peer review committees that represent the areas where the Huntington collections are strongest. So there's always a historian of Britain. There's always a historian of the Americas. There's always a literary scholar of Britain a literary scholar of the Americas, and a historian of art. Those are the five fields that are represented on our panels. I think in our guidance to institutions that are re-granting our money, we, we say three to five, and we prefer more than three. In the Public Scholars Program, when we started off, we did it as three-person panels, and the panelists did not confer with one another. We've changed that, and we now have four-person panels they have a preliminary round in which they evaluate the applications independently, and then they do confer with one another before settling on their final ratings. And our general goal with the composition of those panels would be two people with academic backgrounds who write for the public, one person who's a non-academic, and then one person who has experience as an editor at a trade press. In some cases, different fellowship grant and travel research programs, if you do not get funded, will offer you feedback. Not everybody does, some do. It is usually a redacted, uh, summarized version of the reader's response. If you ever are offered that, you never wanna pass that up. That feedback is invaluable. It can be hard to hear, but it is the most invaluable feedback. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I have been taking notes the entire time. Um, I hope everyone else has. I cannot thank our panelists enough. I've learned so much. It's been such a great experience to, to work with you all. And um, I can tell from the audience comments, people have really 
gotten a lot out of this. So thank you for um, giving us your time today. You just heard highlights from the panel discussion, How to Pay for It, or Funding Your Biography, from BIO's annual conference held virtually in May 2021. It featured moderator Heath Hartage-Lee with panelists Steve Hindle, Carla Kaplan, and Mark Silver. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Oh,